the incredible peace. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would be there in that family, Jesus. And uh, yeah, that's a tough spot, but we just trust in you, Jesus. Lord, thank you for this morning. I pray that you would just be with Dennis as he shares. And I uh, pray that the words spoken would be your words. And uh, just open our hearts to hear in your name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. My name's Dennis, and I do need to put this down a little bit. It might be good for Rich, but it's not good for me. <laughs> it's pretty common for a pastor when they're up here to say, I'm one of the pastors here. So just so it's clear, I'm not one of the pastors here. <laughs> I'm a lay member here, and during the summer, we have a summer sermon series where different people from the congregation have a chance to preach. So I'm grateful for this opportunity to preach. But I'll warn you in advance, I'm an academic. And so this might feel a little bit like a lecture instead of a sermon, but don't worry, there's not going to be a test at the end. We do, however, trust that God's going to accomplish what he wants to today, even if it's in a slightly different style than we're used to. Now, this is also a little bit unusual, but what I'm going to do is cite my sources right at the get-go as well. Are my slides there, Alan? There we go. Thanks. So what you're going to hear tonight, or this morning is a mix of different things that I've drawn from a number of different sources and just my own experience as a Christian over the years. So if you hear N.T. Wright, Gordon Fee, Scott McKnight, and Matthew Bates, that's, that's, uh, that's right. That's where this is being drawn from. Now, one of the... Oh, yeah, and uh, hopefully also my sources will also include St. Paul, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Now, as an academic, I've never cited Jesus or the Holy Spirit in any of my publications. I wonder what an editor might say if I did that, but I'll cite it here. Now, one of the perks, it just seems like my, Alan, is, it, is my thing not working properly? It was working earlier. Nope, I want a black slide. There we go. Okay. So one of the, as an academic, one of the perks that I get as part of the job is traveling to academic conferences. And a few years ago, Val and I had the great opportunity of taking our family to Oxford for two summers. One of the things that we really enjoyed as a family while we were traveling there is the slight differences that you see in how English is used in the UK compared to how it's used here in Canada. And one example that we noticed was this one. Um, that while you're in the United K or in the United Kingdom, if you want a bag of potato chips, you actually need to ask for a bag of crisps instead of a bag of potato chips. Now, in English, in, in Canadian English, we do use the word chips, but we use it very specifically, and we only use it in the construct fish and chips. And the reason for that is because that's an English way of saying things, but in the United Kingdom, if you say chips, you're gonna get a plate of thick-cut french fries. So in Canada, chips means potato chips. In the United Kingdom, chips means something different. And what this means is that this particular word actually has a semantic range. It means that it can have slightly different meanings, and we understand what those meanings are from the context, not from the actual word itself, but how it's used in a sentence. So semantic range can actually lead to some pretty interesting translation errors. 
And if you've traveled, you've experienced this. Caleb, did you want to give me that instead? Is that a better way of doing it? Great, thank you. <laughs> Just say next slide, sorry. It's also sort of academic bingo that there's going to be some sort of technical problem. That's just what happens at a conference. So it's very fitting with the academic sort of flavor this morning. So here's one example of this sort of translation problem. If you just use a dictionary to do translation, you might not be picking the correct word from the semantic range that's available. So this isn't from my own experience, but it's just something that you can find on the internet, and the internet's full of these things some instructions for how to correctly use a shower in an in a Italian hotel. Now, so next slide. These sorts of errors are funny, but they're not usually a barrier to understanding because we notice them and they stick out to us. So when we see that sign in an Italian hotel, we laugh and we say, okay, they don't really mean the vacuum cleaner. They mean flip on the exhaust fan when you're having a shower, but it's funny to us. But a more dangerous situation is, can arise when you have this case where two people are using the same word, but they're assuming a different part of that word's semantic range. And you have this communication failure where you're both thinking different things, but you think you understand what's going on. Now, I had an experience of this when I was in the United Kingdom. I brought a bicycle with me in order to travel. No, it should be a black slide at this point. They're black slides, and then they're not black slides. Sorry. So we had, I had this experience when I was in the United Kingdom. I brought a bicycle with me because it's very expensive to get around in the UK, so I brought a bike. And one day as I was traveling into Oxford to go to this seminar, I got a flat tire. So that meant that I needed to take the time to change the tire, and I got kind of dirty in the process, and it made me late for the seminar. So when I arrived, I was talking with one of the staff, and I was explaining what had happened, and I said, yeah, as I was changing the tire, I got my pants a bit dirty. And the conversation suddenly got very, very awkward, and I couldn't figure out why it had got so awkward. And the person was embarrassed and flustered, and what I didn't realize is that the word pants actually has a semantic range in English. And in the United Kingdom, pants is what you use when you're trying to communicate underwear. So what I should have said is that I got my trousers dirty. But I said I got my pants dirty, and this poor person was suddenly just flustered, like, I don't know why you're telling me this, and it's kind of awkward to imagine that while you're changing a bike tire, you somehow got your underwear dirty. <laughs> so, and we can have the next slide now. The greatest risk of misunderstanding is actually when we think we understand what's being said, but we're missing some important context. The danger isn't when there's an obvious something that we notice that's funny. The greatest danger of miscommunication is when we think we understand what's going on, but we're missing something. So let's go to the next slide. So in this summer sermon series, we've been exploring what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. These are good things. These are life-giving things. We can go to the next slide. This is the list that we've been looking at from Galatians chapter 5. This is a list of things that Paul is telling us come from a life that's filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit. For Paul, the Holy Spirit is what he would call God's empowering presence within us. There's, of course, a contrast with another list that comes prior to this in Galatians 5, which is what Paul calls the list of the flesh or the carnal sinful nature. But we've been focusing this 
uh, summer sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit, what a life looks like when it's filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, what the outworkings of that sort of life is. And the word that we've now come to on the next slide is this one, faithfulness. Now, Paul obviously doesn't use the English word faithfulness because he's writing in Greek. So in the next slide, we see that this word is actually a Greek word called pistis, and it's a very common word in the New Testament. It's translated as faithfulness here, but as we'll see in the next slide, it has a large semantic range. There's no one word in English that accurately encompasses everything that the Greek word pistis means. So because of that, translators of the New Testament have to choose from the, a number of different English words in order to convey the intended meaning. So in the Bible, in the New Testament, when you see words like belief or faith or trust, or in this case, in this word, faithfulness, what's most likely underneath that word in the Greek is this word, pistis. So it has a large semantic range, and it's a very common word. We know, we, we're very familiar with this word from a number of different biblical verses. So in the next slide, I have two very commonly well-known verses. John 3.16, probably the best-known verse in the, in the New Testament, so that everyone believes in him. Well, that's pistis, the Greek word there. Or Ephesians 2, where Paul says, you, by grace you have been saved through pistis, through faith. It's translated as faith there. Now, unfortunately, the words faith and belief also have a semantic range within English. So when we hear those words, we use our semantic range. The problem is, is that our semantic range in English doesn't nicely match up with the semantic range that's in Greek. So there's an opportunity for misunderstanding. So unfortunately, in our culture, words like belief and faith often have a bit of a negative connotation. We'll see this here in the next slide. This is the Oxford English Dictionary definition of belief. It says an acceptance of something that exists, acceptance that something exists or is true, especially one without proof. So there's this negative connotation there that says, okay, there are things that you believe, but there are things that you can't really prove, like you might be able to prove with science in some way. As an aside, that's a misunderstanding of science, but we don't have time to go there right now. Or the next slide, with faith. Strong belief in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual conviction, but again, without proof. Now, unfortunately, this kind of simplistic cultural understanding of faith and belief colors our, in, our understanding when we read the Bible. Because when we read the Bible and we see the word belief and we see the word faith, we take the English meanings that can include these negative connotations and we actually sort of put that onto what the Bible is saying. But interestingly enough, the word pistis that uh, Paul and others are using in the New Testament doesn't have that as part of its semantic range. It's not, they would never use that sort of things that you believe but without good justification for it. That sort of thing would never come into that range of pistis. Now, unfortunately, Christians themselves, we ourselves often have a fairly simplistic view of belief and faith because we've been colored by our society. So, for example, in the next slide, if you've ever seen a gospel tract, if you've ever been given a gospel tract, and I had one of these put into the door of my car just the other day, it wasn't this particular tract, but one that was similar to it, often the, the presentation of the message of salvation is sort of a very simplistic one. You know, there's a problem, 
and that problem is that you're a sinner. This particular track that I've found online actually spends several pages you know, very emphatically establishing that everybody is sinful and here's all the ways that you're sinful. And then the solution is offered, well, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. But the idea here is that belief is probably something kind of like intellectual assent at this point. Most people, when they read that, that would, they would think that that's what that means. Oh, I just have to intellectually believe that Jesus is God. And salvation is probably something along the lines of, oh, so I don't have to get burned in hell forever. You know, isn't that a great message? You know, I don't understand. Why aren't people flocking to the faith, right? God loves you so much that you have to believe in him so that you won't, he won't torture you in hell forever. Well, and unfortunately, that's a bit of a caricature, but unfortunately, that's how a lot of people outside the faith kind of view uh, the Christian faith. So, you know, why would anyone want to sign up for that? It sounds kind of awkward. It sounds kind of, man, I wouldn't want to be a part of that. So, we can go to the next slide, which is just a black one. So, part of the problem here is that we might be missing some important context. We see the word belief, we see the word faith, and we think we know what, they're mean, what they mean, but we might be thinking trousers, and Paul might be thinking underwear, or we might be thinking, you know, potato chips, and Paul might be thinking English chips. Now, the writers of these tracts do get their ideas from the Bible. For example, in Acts 16, we have a story of Paul and Silas in jail in Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony. They've traveled there to preach about Jesus, and they end up performing an exorcism on a girl who is being used for fortune-telling, and the people who are the owners of that girl get upset because now they can no longer use this girl as a fortune teller to make money. So Paul and Silas get thrown into prison. As a result, one thing leads to another. They're up late at night, and they're singing and they're praying, and the other prisoners are listening to them, and there's a massive earthquake. It shakes the foundation of the prison such that it breaks open doors and the mounts for their fetters are broken loose, and the jailer wakes up and he's absolutely terrified. Now, there's good reason for him to be terrified because under the Roman system, if your prisoners escape, you're usually held responsible, and you're usually held responsible by being executed. So he's shaken. He's seen this incredible display of power. Paul calls out to him to not harm himself because he says, we're all still here. Don't harm yourself. He's seen this incredible display of power. He associates it with Jesus because he's heard Paul and Silas talking about Jesus. And this is what happens. The next slide. He falls at the feet of Paul and Silas, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, isn't this interesting? He knows Christianese. Well, no, he doesn't. He doesn't know Christianese. He doesn't. He's using that word in a certain way, and we'll understand that in a second. Paul and Silas answer, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your whole household. Now, at first blush, this sounds kind of like that tract, right? Just believe and be saved, and it's all good. So we might need to get into the skin of what's going on here, get into the skin of the original audience, and see what the deeper context might be. We can get some of that context from a letter that Paul writes to the believers at Philippi. So this is much later, and that Philippian jailer would have been part of that church that this letter would have been written to. And this is what Paul says in that letter in the next slide. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there 
that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at first blush, this kind of sounds just more like Christianese, you know, just like the track. You believe and you're saved and you go to heaven. But part of what we don't recognize here is that Savior and Lord and salvation are actually political terms. These are not Christianese terms. They've kind of become Christianese terms in the present day because we only use them in the context of Christianity. But in ancient Rome, these are actually political terms. Paul is using ancient political language, but we miss it. Paul is actually telling the, the jailer that he needs to recognize that Jesus is Savior and Lord, and that Caesar is not Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord are actually technical terms for the Roman emperor. They had this system whereby they claimed that they were deified, and there was actually a cult that developed around them that was sort of the imperial cult, and what you did to show that you were a good Roman citizen and that you were in line with the emperor is you said Caesar is savior and Caesar is lord. And saviors, well, what do saviors do? Saviors bring salvation. So what do we mean by salvation? Salvation in this context is what the, the emperor brings to you. He brings you peace. He brings you prosperity. He brings you freedom and flourishing. And that is what they thought of as salvation. So when that Philippian jailer is saying, what do I have to do to be saved? He's talking about political stuff there. He's recognized that his current system isn't working and that something more powerful has just shown up. So what is Paul actually asking when he says, when he tells the jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus, and there's that word again, pistis, believe and you'll be saved. He's actually asking him to change his allegiance. He's saying, you need to turn away from Caesar as Savior and Lord, and you need to recognize that there's a different Savior and Lord, and that that is Jesus. So on the next slide, we'll see that this, we've looked at the semantic range of pistis earlier on and saw that it had this range, but this is not actually the full range of what pistis is used for in the ancient Greek world. It's actually commonly used as the technical term for loyalty or allegiance, especially to an emperor, what we'll see here in the next line. So this is actually the full range of what this word actually means. Now, later, when you're reading your Bibles and you see the word belief, and you, or you see the word faith, mentally try out these ideas. Substitute out allegiance, see how it reads. Substitute out loyalty, see how it reads. Now, Pistis is not always best translated as allegiance, but in certain situations it most certainly is, especially when things like Savior and Lord are in view because those are imperial emperor terms. So what Paul is actually asking this fellow to do is treasonous. He's asking him to deny Caesar as Savior and Lord and change his allegiance or change his loyalty to Jesus. So in the next slide... We could actually sort of retranslate this to get those nuances and bring them out. What must I do to be saved? The answer, transfer your allegiance from Caesar to the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You will experience his salvation, you and your household. So allegiance or pistis in this context is not just intellectual assent. It's not just mentally checking off the box. Yeah, I think Jesus is God, so I'm good and I'm saved. Allegiance in the ancient world and now is physical embodied things that you do in order to show your loyalty 
to the emperor. Let's go to the next slide. So pistis towards Jesus is not merely intellectual assent that Jesus is God. Yeah, it has to start there. We're not going to name Jesus as Savior and Lord if we don't think he was who he says he was. But that's just the very beginning. Allegiance, pistis, is embodied allegiance to Jesus as Savior and Lord, and that he's the Lord of the whole world. And this is what results from a life that's empowered by the Holy Spirit, Paul will say. Okay, next slide. Just a black slide. So at that point, we can say, okay, here's the Philippian jailer. He's just heard this message. He's seen this display of power, and he says to Paul, okay, tell me about this Jesus. Tell me about who this person is. If he's the true Savior and Lord of the entire world, then who is he? Tell me about him. Now, the challenge here for Paul and for Christians in the first century is that Jesus wasn't a conquering general, and he wasn't a savvy politician. And those were the two things that generally led to you becoming emperor. That and assassination, if you look at the history of Rome. So who is Jesus? Well, he's a crucified criminal. It's really hard for us to get into the skin of first century Jews, but we have to try to sort of understand what, I mean, we're very used to this idea, yeah, Messiahs get crucified, and that's how, what the plan was meant to be all along. But this is utterly foreign to their understanding. So Jesus is a rabbi. He gathers disciples around him, and he teaches them. He's a bit unusual because he gathers women as part of his discipleship group, but that's kind of strange. But other than that, he's sort of, you know, your standard Jewish rabbi. His disciples eventually decide that he's the Messiah. Now, Messiah, again, is a political term. It's a king like David, an anointed one, a king who's going to come and restore Israel's golden age. And most importantly, that would bring God's presence back to the temple. So the idea is that God's presence would be there and it would bring salvation. Now, there's a whole bunch of messianic movements right around the time of Jesus. Some of their leaders were killed. Some of them were even crucified. And none of those movements survive past the death of their leader. Because if you have a, someone who claims to be a Messiah and they're crucified, that's it. It's done. You're over. So think about Peter. When Jesus, you know, when Peter says, you know, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, and Jesus starts to explain to him, well, what's going to actually happen is I'm going to be given over, I'm going to be crucified, and I'll rise again. And Peter says, no, this is never going to happen to you. It's happened to other people, but it's never going to happen to you. And then the crucifixion happens, and what does Peter do? He denies Jesus. I've never been a part of that movement. Well, why? He's terrified. If you're part of a movement that's seen as an insurrectionist movement against Rome, it's quite likely that you would be killed as well. Now, his female disciples don't flee. They stay with Jesus out of love, and John does as well, because he's probably too young to be seen as a military threat. But they all know that he can't be the Messiah. They loved him as a teacher and as a prophet, but he couldn't have been the Messiah. Later, Paul puts it to, a, to the Corinthians in one of his letters in this way, in this next slide. He says, Jews ask for signs, Greeks want wisdom, but we proclaim a crucified Messiah. It's offensive to Jews and it's nonsense to Greeks. But for those called by God, whether they are Jews or Greeks, this Messiah is God's power and wisdom. God's foolishness is wiser than our wisdom, and his weakness is greater than our strength. So something happens to this movement that changes it from a movement that's disbanded and fearful at the death of their leader. 
And of course, we all know what that change is. They claim that they've seen Jesus raised from the dead. Now, what happens is this movement goes from disbanded and disheartened and broken to a movement that very shortly reshapes the entire Roman world in just a few generations. Now, even secular historians agree that that's what happened. The question is, well, what happened to change that, to change them? And personally, I think the best explanation for that is what they experienced, was that they actually did see Jesus raised from the dead. Now, this changes their whole categories. Once Jesus is raised from the dead, they understood that that was God vindicating him as the true Messiah. So now they have to reshape their ideas of what the Messiah was actually going to be, because they couldn't deny that he had been raised from the dead, which meant that God was putting his stamp of approval on him and saying, yes, this is the true Messiah. So they go out to proclaim the good news, which is just another political term again. Good news are what you proclaim when there's a new emperor. When new emperors came to the throne, they would proclaim their gospel to the Roman Empire and say, good news, there's an emperor, he's won, an, he's won a battle, he's come to the throne, and give him your allegiance, which is what Paul is asking for us too. So what does allegiance to Jesus actually look like? So, and this is also what the Philippian jailer would have been asking about. Tell me what it means to be faithful. Tell me what it means to be loyal. Tell me what it means to be someone who gives his allegiance to this Jesus. Now Jesus was asked this question and his answer was pretty simple. He said, love God, love others the same way that you love yourself. And this sums up the whole law and the prophets. Now, he also spelled out for us some other things, too, because, you know, we're a bit thick, so he had to kind of go into the details. Yeah, when I say love others, that means your enemies, too. Okay, that's different. Forgive those who wrong you. Don't pay back evil for evil. Overcome evil with good. So this is, these are the basics of what allegiance to Jesus looks like. Of course, for each of us as followers of Jesus, we have our own allegiance to give to Jesus. So my allegiance to Jesus might look a little different than yours beyond these basics because God calls us to individual acts based on our own giftings and our own circumstances. But these are the basics and everything that we do needs to fit within these ideas that Jesus, is, that Jesus taught. Now, strangely enough, when Paul proclaims this message, people buy into it. And I don't, think how we, I don't think we appreciate just how weird it was. Paul is saying, you know, this is a stumbling block to Jews. It's, it's nonsense to Greeks, but we preach a crucified Messiah. But people saw the power of God associated with what was happening. It wasn't just this sort of bland message, repent and believe in Jesus. They saw the power of God working through the Holy Spirit and in the early church. And they recognized that there was a power there that was not from this world. So they see the power of God in action along with the message, and they switch their allegiance to Jesus. Let's go to the next slide. For, and one more, thanks. So for me personally, one of the reasons that I've decided to give my allegiance to Jesus is because when I live the way that Jesus lays out, I feel at my most alive. I feel at my most human. I experience love and joy and peace and flourishing I experience what I imagine the way life is really meant to be. Now, all of those terms that I've just been talking about, that's what's wrapped up in that word salvation. So the Romans, as they're hearing this, and they're hearing about this Savior and, and this Lord who brings this, 
they're thinking about it in political terms. They're thinking about it in kingdom terms. And Jesus is basically saying, yes, it's now, it's here, my kingdom is here, but it's also not yet fully inaugurated, but it's coming. That verse where Paul says, you know, our citizenship is in heaven, but we expect a savior from there. The idea is that it starts now. We're a colony of heaven, just like Philippi was a colony of Rome. But someday the emperor is coming and his kingdom will be in its fullness. Now, I fail more than I succeed at this. When you try to live as Jesus has laid out, it's really difficult because our, our sinful nature fights against it. And we've seen that list, that sinful nature list that Paul talks about. But when I live like that, when I actually live like that, I experience such joy and fulfillment that I'm convinced that it comes from a power that's not from this world. I feel deep in my spirit that this is the right way to live, this is the best way to live, and I'm experiencing salvation. Jesus was recorded saying pretty much the same thing in John's Gospel on the next slide. He says, the thief only comes to kill and steal and destroy. Now, just in case you're not immediately familiar with the context, the thief here in this verse are other bad leaders within Israel. And Jesus probably has in mind some of the false messianic movements as well. He said, they only came to kill, to kill, to kill and to destroy, but I've come that Israel and the world might have life and have it abundantly. Now, we might be tempted to think that these words only apply to the first century, we might think that the good news isn't as good as it once was. But people are still hearing the message and they're still entering into Jesus' abundant life. And sometimes it's pretty dramatic. In this next slide, this is an example that I came across on Facebook yesterday, and it's going to be kind of small, but I made it a public post on Facebook. So go on Facebook, find this post, and read it. This is a story of a white neo-Nazi who was a grand dragon of the KKK. And he, was a, he participated in the riots in, um, in uh, Charlottesville last year. And then he met some followers of Jesus. He met some followers of Jesus who are black. And he now attends a black church. And he has completely changed his outlook on life. So this is actually a picture of him being baptized by his black congregation, and he's experiencing love and joy and peace. He has exchanged the hatred that he had that consumed his life. He has exchanged it for following Jesus. And when you're baptized, that's what you're doing. You're publicly saying, now think about this in the Roman world, right? You're publicly saying, I've switched my allegiance from Caesar, and I've given it to Jesus. He's saying, I've switched my allegiance from Nazism and I'm changing it to Jesus. Now, think of what he's experiencing. Love, joy, peace, fellowship, the, the feeling that he's living life the way it's supposed to be. If that's not salvation, I don't know what is. This is the life of Jesus' coming kingdom, and he gets to experience it starting now. It's not just for the future. It's something that's coming now as well. He gets to experience the already even though it's not yet fully inaugurated. I'll invite the worship team to come up as we close. So the disciples had to struggle with the crucifixion as part of Jesus' messiahship. Now, 
they could, they, they knew from the resurrection that this had to be what God's plan was. The resurrection proved to them that Jesus as Messiah was God's plan all along. But they had to struggle with this. Why crucifixion? What is going on here? Eventually, they came to understand that Jesus' death was actually a victory. It was a victory that he won over death and evil on our behalf. Now, have we heard that before? You know, how do emperors, how do people become emperors? Well, they fight a great battle. They defeat an enemy. They bring peace. They bring salvation to their empire. And that's what they understood that Jesus has done as well. Now, Jesus won this victory because he was faithful to God's plan. Now, you hear that word, you hear faithful, and again, it's that same Greek word, pistos. And Paul will frequently talk about the faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus' allegiance, just as we have allegiance to Jesus, Jesus had allegiance to God the Father. Paul puts it this way in a, in, earlier in this letter to the Galatians that we get the fruit list from here in the next slide. One more. He says, I'm crucified with the Messiah, and I'm no longer alive. The, it's the Messiah living in me. The life I do live in this body, I live because of Jesus' faithfulness, the allegiance that Jesus had to God the Father. He loved me, and he gave himself for me. So through Jesus, God has won a great victory over evil. He's shown us his covenant faithfulness. That idea of Jesus' faithfulness is intimately connected to those things that we've seen in the Old Testament about God's covenant faithfulness. Here is God in human form showing us his ultimate faithfulness to God's plan such that he can win this victory, defeat death, defeat evil, and bring us salvation, God's kingdom, where we experience love, joy, peace, and all of the things that Paul talks about in that fruit of the Spirit list. So good news. There's a new emperor who brings salvation. Change your thinking. Transfer your allegiance to him. That's both a call for those of us who already name Jesus as Savior and Lord, and it's also an invitation for anyone who does not yet do so. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to your Father's plan. We thank you for the great victory that you won over death and evil, that you won on our behalf. Thank you for the salvation that you bring. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can live a life of faithful, embodied allegiance to you as Savior and Lord of the whole world. Amen. Please join us as we sing about faith. Let's stand. As we sing about this God's who's faithful. Mm -hmm. 